Well, good evening, Lakeside. It is, I want to echo Joel's words, it is always great to be with the body of Christ, and this should be one of our greatest refuges in the world. Amen? Well, let's turn in our Bibles this evening, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2. Tonight, we're going to be looking in his first epistle. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 3 through 11. So I'd like to begin by reading our text this evening. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, a message I've entitled, A New Standard in an Old Commandment. John writes, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the clarity of this particular passage. And Lord, may we as believers take to heart all that we read here. Lord, we understand the importance of our unity and fellowship. We understand the importance of the evidences that we show to prove that we indeed belong to you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would open the hearts of all of us, that you would help us to, again, be attentive to the word. And Lord, that you would teach us through the Spirit of God how we are to conduct ourselves with one another, and Lord, how we prove the genuineness of our faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is often difficult to tell the difference between what is real and what is counterfeit. And I can illustrate this truth by sharing a family memory from years ago. Years ago, our family visited a wax museum, and of course, if you've ever been to a wax museum, you know that the figures look incredibly real. The eyes, the skin, the hair, the posture. And my father was walking ahead of me, he was looking at these different exhibits, and I could tell that he was totally fascinated by each exhibit that he passed. And at the end of the exhibit, down a long, dark hallway, there was a man who was sitting in a chair who was admiring this last exhibit. And my father immediately struck up a conversation with this man, and he said, boy, this is really something, isn't it? These exhibits look so real. Not getting a response, he tapped the man on the shoulder and realized it was a wax dummy. And I got to tell you, I could not stop laughing. And as much as I enjoyed that museum, that was the highlight of my day. Now, on a more serious note, the reality is the church often resembles a spiritual wax museum because when we gather together, it is hard at times, isn't it, to determine the difference between true and counterfeit spirituality. And the reason for that is because they look so much alike. 
In the church, we know that people readily announce their allegiance to Jesus. They proclaim to have an intimate relationship with him. They all look like Christians. They talk like Christians. They claim to be Christians. They go to Christian dentists. They have a Christian dog, and on it goes. And yet we know that many who proclaim Christ are not true Christians. And the reality, beloved, is this, that the church has had and always will have spiritual counterfeits who are void of true faith and who really do not know God. And so we have to ask, is there any way that we can determine the difference between what is real and what is counterfeit when it comes to the faith? In other words, are there any tests that we can apply? Are there any sure evidences that someone's faith is actually genuine? And of course, we know that the answer to that question is yes. And the Apostle John, in his first epistle, addresses this very issue. And to get to the heart of the matter, we see it addressed in our text, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And in this text, John tests the claims of those who affirm that they know God, those who affirm that they live in his light. And John avows that if a person claims to be living in the fellowship with God, that that should be verifiable by the sort of life that he or she lives in the world. Now, before we expound this text, I want you to consider the seriousness of this issue. You know, inconsistency in the Christian life is why so many have written off Christian belief as simply irrelevant fiction. An unsaved world asks, how can these people claim to be Christians who claim to know God and yet they are so unlike him? And nothing is a greater stumbling block to agnostics than those who claim true faith but who live ungodly lives. And I think, beloved, one of the greatest hindrances to the spread of the gospel and true faith comes not from worldly opposition, but from those within the church. Sometimes we can be the biggest problem. And here's the problem. If the world sees hypocrisy within the church, it can literally negate the testimony of the gospel. Now here again, we don't live perfectly, I understand that, and that's not the call. But our lives should demonstrate a constant love and obedience to Christ. So that brings us to our text, and I want to just briefly kind of give you the text within the context of 1 John. John is writing this epistle to give believers assurance of their salvation, and over and over again, we see this phrase, by this we know, and I love that phrase. John is writing to give assurance of salvation, and he says that God is light and that Satan is the prince of darkness, and that to obey God is literally to walk in the light, to disobey God is to walk in darkness. And John points out that it's possible for people to say that they're in the light, and yet they continue to live in darkness. And he specifically points here to the false teachers in the church who were making false theological claims about themselves and also about God. These teachers were lying about fellowship. They were saying that they had genuine Christian fellowship. They were walking in darkness. They were not practicing the truth. They also lied by saying that they had no sin nature. They were deceiving themselves with a false sense of righteousness. So these teachers then claimed that they hadn't sinned, and therefore they said, we have no need to confess anything. We have no need to repent of anything before God. 
But John directly counters this kind of teaching and he tells the true believers that yes, you do have a sin nature and you do sin, but in Christ you have an advocate, a propitiation for your sins. But these false teachers went even further. They lied about their obedience to God by saying that they had kept God's commandments when they really had not at all. And this led to confusion to many in the church, and many did not know whether these claims of the false teachers were true or not. So to bring clarity, John turns his attention to those true Christians who had remained under his teaching, but who were being influenced by these negative debates within the congregation. And specifically, John wants the church to know how to determine true Christianity from false Christianity. So what are we going to do tonight? Well, tonight in our text, we're going to see that the Apostle John affirms there are two tests that can be applied to someone's faith to determine whether or not someone is truly in the faith. And as we examine these tests, we're going to see that John lays down some new standards to the way many wanted to apply old commandments. So now we're ready to dig into our text And the first test that John applies in determining the genuineness of someone's faith is the moral test. The moral test. And we find that in verses 3 through 6. So let's look there again. John says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected And by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now let's begin by asking, what is the moral test here? What is John talking about? Basically what he's saying is this, that if a person claims to know God, it's going to be evidenced by a righteous lifestyle. And a righteous lifestyle, beloved, is evidenced as one obeys the commandments of God. And thus, in verse 3, John says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if what? If we keep his commandments. The false teachers, namely the Gnostics, spoke much about knowledge, and they promoted this sense of spiritual enlightenment, mystical inspiration as a key to faith. And they claimed that salvation did not depend upon freedom from sin, but rather freedom from ignorance. They basically said that you could intellectually think your way to righteousness before God. And John, of course, attacks this thinking. He says there is a new standard by which salvation needs to be tested. He says, so let's talk about knowledge for a minute. You want to talk about knowledge. So John says, okay, what characterizes someone who truly knows God? John says that to know God is just not knowledge of a one-time enlightenment. We know that knowing God is a past experience, right? It starts at salvation, but it has ongoing consequences. And therefore, John is promoting the fact that salvation, true salvation, is also experiential. It is not speculative. It is not abstract. A believer's knowledge of God has to reveal itself in present action. So he's saying, look, The evidence of true belief is this continuing pattern of obedience to God. Now here again, none of us do that perfectly. 
But a genuine believer has a desire to obey God. And this obedience, beloved, is demonstrated in a believer's daily life. So you see what John is saying here, that the truth of knowing God can be tested. Okay, it's not some kind of ethereal spirituality where we have to guess. True faith can be tested because it's real. It can be seen. And those who keep God's commandments will evidence a moral righteousness. Now conversely, in verse 4, John says, if one does not keep God's commandments, then he's a liar. This person does not have the truth because verbal confession and knowledge alone does not constitute true faith. It's not acquired through a deeper knowledge. You know, there are many PhDs in religious institutions that have a lot of knowledge, but they are absolutely hell-bound. So John is saying, keeping God's commandments implies obedience. It's more than just observing. Listen, beloved, our faith is not passive. Amen? Right? Amen? Our faith is active. It's an active faith. It ties intellect to action. It is not just mere conformity to the law. And the new standard, Jesus said, is giving ourselves our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength over in allegiance to Christ every single day. Everything we do is wound and bound up in the gospel. And I thought Pastor Joe brought that out very well today in 1 Peter chapter 4. Now I want you to notice in verse 5 that the word commandments is changed to word. There's really no difference in meaning here. Both terms are used in a general sense and they refer to God's divine will however it's revealed. But here's what I want you to see in that verse. That John drives home the fact that love is what motivates us to keep the word of God. Love. The greatest assurance here is that in keeping the word in loving obedience, we demonstrate genuine faith. And Jesus stated this very thing directly in John chapter 14, verse 15, when he stated, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is how the disciples showed the genuineness of their faith. They persevered in the word. They guarded the word carefully. And so in verse 6, John says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And again, Christ is always the ultimate standard. Now, I think this truth places some severe tests on those who claim to follow Christ. The first question we need to ask is, do our lives demonstrate obedience to Christ? You know, this call of obedience should not be casually dismissed. You know, it's one of these words that we call church talk, right? Yes, trust and obey, it's the only way, right? And sometimes we can hear this so much that the word becomes kind of, kind of numb in our minds. But we need to think very carefully about this because this obedience that John is talking about should not be casually dismissed. And we know that obedience to God's word is not in vogue today. Amen? <laughs> in fact, God's love is often divorced from anything so messy as keeping his commandments. You know, salvation is often grounded solely in knowing of the grace of God. And some who claim Christ vehemently deny that there's anything to see in a believer's life. 
And they even get offended at the thought that grace and works must both be evident as a test of genuine faith. And again, I think of the easy believism gospel, the free grace movement, where you just name the name of Jesus. I had a family member tell me not long ago, I don't believe you'd have to do anything after you get saved for Jesus and you'd still go to heaven. (gasps) I don't know what Bible that comes out of, but that's not what I'm reading. And I sometimes wonder, beloved, if in our zealousness to emphasize salvation by grace, we've lost the truth that a believer also desires and strives to keep the commandments of God. Obviously, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But true faith does not stand on grace alone. Amen? It produces the works of obedience as evidence that God's grace has been activated in our lives. Now, certainly, Paul defended salvation by grace. We are not saved by works. But he also affirmed that a Christian life will display good works through obedience to the word. And I think this is highlighted best in John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And he says this, The gospel in vogue today holds forth a false hope to sinners. It promises them they can have eternal life, yet continue to live in rebellion against God. Indeed, it encourages people to claim Jesus as Savior, yet defer until later the commitment to obey him as Lord. It offers false security to people who revel in the sins of the flesh and spurn the way of holiness. By separating faith from faithfulness, it leaves the impression that intellectual assent is as valid as wholehearted obedience to the truth. Thus, the good news of Christ has given way to the bad news of an insidious, easy believism that makes no moral demands on the lives of sinners. It is not the same message that Jesus proclaimed. So, beloved, all I'm saying is we really need to think about this. We need to prove that we can pass the moral test. When we claim to know Christ, do we pass this? And you know, as we read in 2 Peter, it isn't that we always have to learn something new. We need to be reminded of those things that we already know. You know, the false teachers in John's day taught that you could attain God and know God through knowledge alone. And again, that's Gnosticism, and that form of Gnosticism is alive today. Just know about Christ, know about the gospel, confess that you know the gospel and you're saved. But they saw no need for any accompanying righteousness as evidence of true faith. And these false teachers in pagan times or in John's day as it is today continued in the worst of pagan practices under the false illusion that they had attained righteousness through knowledge. But John affirms that there is a new standard that genuine faith is evidenced through obedience and the pursuit of a righteous life. So from a practical standpoint, we can think of it this way. Why is a righteous moral life proof that we know God? And I think this is one of the greatest evidences. Because a moral life is not natural to sinful man. Amen? How many of you find living a righteous life to be very natural? I struggle with it every day. Pastor Joe, thanks for saying what you did today. He struggles with it every day. In fact... Steve and I years ago often said that if you knew what went on behind closed doors, you'd fire both of us. But you don't, so. 
But it takes the Spirit's control of our life, doesn't it, to live a righteous life. And we know that. So we need to think about the fact, are we able to pass the moral test? There's a second test that John applies to determine the genuineness of someone's faith. And in addition to the moral test, John also says we need to apply a social test. We need to apply a social test. And we see this in verses 7 through 11. He writes, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. And the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now remember that in the preceding verses, John admonished believers that they needed to keep the commandments of God. But now in verses 7 and 8, he brings forth one command specifically, and that command is to love. Now, you may notice that verses 7 and 8 do not contain the word love. In fact, that word is only mentioned again in verse 10. But the command to love is clearly what John had in mind here. And I want you to notice in verse 7, John says that this commandment is not new. Rather, he states it's an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. Now, we are not left to guess what this old commandment is. John tells us in the next phrase that the old commandment is the word which you have heard. However, this does not adequately explain what John means here. And here is the dilemma that we have. If John is referring here to the command to love then we need to ask, in what sense is the command to love not new? Well, certainly the command to love is not new in the sense that it's been around since Old Testament times. God did not invent love in the New Testament. In fact, in Leviticus 19.18, we read that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's clear that God commanded his people to demonstrate love under the Mosaic law. In fact, Jesus referred to Leviticus when in Mark 12, 28, a scribe asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered in verses 29 through 31, and part of his reply there, beloved, was, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Deuteronomy 6, 5, we read, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. So certainly then we see the command to love was not new in the sense of being a New Testament revelation. However, if we look carefully at the context of what John is saying in verse 7, we see that John is not comparing love in the Old Testament to love in the New Testament. And we know that because of what we read at the end of verse 7, when John says that this old commandment is one which you have had, notice this, from the beginning... The old commandment is the word which you have heard. 
While it's true that to love is a commandment that did exist in the Old Testament, the phrase that we see here from the beginning is not a reference to the beginning of time, but rather to the beginning of these believers' Christian life. It refers to the instruction they received from the day of their salvation. And we see this in other places. Look at 1 John 2, verse 24. John writes, And as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. John says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then in 2 John, verse 6, he says again, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments, and this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So here's John's point. With the coming of Christ, this commandment to love literally took on a new meaning. John reveals here a new standard in an old commandment. And in human flesh, this new way of loving was exemplified by our Lord Jesus Christ, who demonstrated perfect love by giving himself in love for us. In other words, Jesus fulfilled the law of love in a way that had never been seen before. He personified love. And you know, I love what John wrote in 1 John 1.1. He told the church that he had heard and seen and beheld and handled Jesus, the word of life. How many of you would like to have a little uh, video of that encounter? I mean, think of the impact that had on the Apostle John. John saw the love of God and he experienced the love of God firsthand. And here's the thing, beloved, that applies not only to John, but to us as well. That not only was this love lived out before the Apostle John, but it was directed at him. And you know, that love of God, as we come to Christ, is also directed at us. And John reminds the church that, look, you've had this commandment to love from the beginning of your Christian life. You have been taught this commandment to love since the time of your salvation. And the idea that John is getting across to these confused church members of his day is that, look, in Jesus, Jesus raises the standard of love to a different level. And now he commands his disciples, look, I'm showing you love, I'm demonstrating love, I'm directing love towards you, and now I want you to demonstrate that love, the love of Christ in yourself towards others and towards me. And nowhere is that more clearly proclaimed than in John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus, talking to his disciples here, says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, we're going to come back to this in a moment. But I want you to notice the result of this in verse 8. He says, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John is writing here of this new commandment to love. And remember that this commandment departs from the old characteristics of the law. And that's what he's getting across here. 
What was the emphasis in the law? It was on outward conformity to certain religious regulations, certain rights. But the Christian rule of love is a new command because it expresses what love looks like through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We literally, folks, have God's Spirit in us and we have the love of Christ dwelling in us. That is amazing. So John is telling the church that not only was the love of God fulfilled and seen through Jesus, but now it is fulfilled and it is seen through us. As ambassadors of Christ, we show that love, we receive that love, we feel that love, we give that love. In Christ, we have the ability, and I pray the desire, to love others with the love of Christ. That's what makes our fellowship so unique. The world doesn't have this. And love is the defining characteristic for those who walk in righteousness. You cannot claim to walk in righteousness if you do not exhibit love. Those two things are intimately connected. But you know, John is not content to simply define this new commandment and say, well, yeah, this is what it is. John is also clear to state that this love is to be an obedient love. Okay, it's a love that needs to be evidenced in the life of a believer. So he drives here right to the heart of the matter, And he gives an exclusive and straightforward social test to show what obedience to God's love demands. And I love John because he just puts it so simply. Look at verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness. And he walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. Now this is a pretty straightforward test. And John does not mince words here. He clearly defines, hey, you want to know if you're truly in the faith? Look in the mirror and ask yourself these questions. And you may wonder why John chose to deliberately put this contrast before the church. And again, it has to do with what the false teachers were teaching. They claimed to love, but they loved in intellect only. They substituted this intellectual understanding of love, but denied that it would result in any practical changes in behavior. And listen, don't be deceived. There are people in evangelical churches today that would wholeheartedly tell you that you can know the way of salvation and you can put faith in Christ and you don't have to evidence anything. You can live any way you want. Now, I don't know what gospel they're looking at, but that's not the gospel that I'm seeing. These false teachers claimed to be in the light of God's truth, but in reality, they were in darkness. And so John says this with absolute certainty because they manifested a hatred for their supposed brothers in Christ. Those are strong words. Now, how does the Bible define hatred? We need to understand and clarify this. Hatred here is not referring to occasional outbursts of anger or difficulties between believers. Listen, if we were disqualified because of difficulties among believers, none of us would be saved. Amen? 
I mean, let's face it. Is there anybody here who's never had difficulty with anybody? So we know it's not that. The thought here, rather, is an attitude which habitually hates. So here, John is describing a person who is indignant, a person who is persistently angry, a person who is in constant disregard for others. So this is a pattern. This is the bent of this person's life. It is kind of the idea of, of people you know perhaps who just doesn't take much for a volcano to erupt. That they're always walking around in a perpetual state of anger, of resentment, of animosity, of indignation. And this is, kind of describes who they are. And these false teachers, with their perceived greater knowledge, really looked down upon the people in the church. They thought that they were of a much higher caliber than many. So John's social test is that true Christians walk in the light and they evidence genuine faith by their tangible love for brothers and sisters in the faith. You know, we should be concerned when we hear people or professing believers say that, you know, I really don't want to be in church, I really don't see the importance of it, I really don't get along with people, that's antagonistic to what the gospel teaches. Now, I'm not saying you have to have everybody in this room as your best friend, amen? But you ought to have a genuine, sincere love for the brethren. When you come in on Sunday morning, do you endure it or do you look forward to it? Because this is an evidence of true faith. Conversely, those who claim to love Christ and have no love for the brethren, John says, look, you're walking in darkness. You are shut off from the light. And those who hate separate themselves from the presence of God and they separate themselves from the presence of other believers. And I think, again, this is another test, this social test, that we need to take very seriously. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, 34, that we're to love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And in the Greek, this phrase means that we are to love, this is what Jesus is saying, I want you to love to the same degree, with the same proportions, of equal comparison for the same cause and the same reason. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you think that's a pretty tall order? How many of you think you love like Jesus loves? <laughs> no hands in the air. D.A. Carson writes this, he says, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, yet profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, isn't it true that sometimes the simplest commands in Scripture carry the most weight and carry the most difficulty to carry out? Love the brethren. No hidden meaning there. But putting that into practice. How many of you have a spotless record in here with the brethren? Anybody? Me neither. And I think D.A. Carson is right. Again, this commandment is easy to understand, but when we contemplate Christ's love for us and when we see what a formidable challenge it is to put into practice we know that apart from the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, that we're never able to do that. It's impossible to love like this without 
the love of Christ in us. But for true believers, and here's what we need to see, it's not only possible, it's imperative. We're commanded to love like this. And what was the character of Christ's love towards men? Let's talk a little bit practically. What does it require for us to put something like this in practice? And I want to just consider four ways that we can show genuine love to the brethren. And certainly this is not even close to an exhaustive list. In fact, this is just hardly scratching the surface. But four things that I think are things that often challenge us more on a regular basis. First, our love for the brethren should not be motivated by personal benefit. Now let's face this, isn't it true that often man's love for man is motivated by a certain degree of selfishness and reciprocal expectation? Don't we often do things for others with the attitude, well, I'm scratching your back, so you better scratch mine. Amen? Come on, you can admit it, you're not hiding anything, right? Don't we often hope that our love for others is going to produce some kind of personal advantage? Or don't we often hope that we get something out of it? That our love for others will somehow benefit us. But that's not so with the love of Christ for man. If you think about Jesus' love, he had no personal interest to serve, beloved. Men could not benefit him in any way. And our love for Christ does not fulfill any lack of need because Christ lacks nothing. He needs nothing from us. His love for us does not contain ulterior motives. And that's what we're driving at here. And aren't you glad of that? But it's hard to love that way, isn't it? It's hard to love. You know, as much as we think our love is pure, I realize at times how stinky my love is. How about you? It's not where it ought to be. To love fully and sacrificially and, and not to look for something in return. You know, I thought of an example years ago. I actually held some indignation towards my children. Go figure. You know, you raise kids, right? You invest time in them, and you invest money in them, and you invest energy in them, and then they get older. And I remember thinking, now they're finally old enough to help me to do some things for me. And then what happens? They go off to college, or they go off to work, they leave the house, they get married, and it's, thanks, Dad, I'll see you later. Now, I'm glad for all those things, but I remember thinking, where's the payback? I mean, you should be cutting my lawn at least another 500 times, right? Like these kids, they just, you know, you finally can get something out of them and then they leave. But that's normal. It's hard to love, isn't it? And give when you're not appreciated or when you may feel that love is not going to be reciprocated. And yet, listen, beloved, that's how we're called to love one another. We're called to follow Jesus' example to love others with a willful love that, listen, is focused on giving and not getting. And listen, if you love that way, you're going to get more from the Lord than you can imagine. He sees everything, and he knows. Second, we see that Christ's love was not influenced by merit, and neither should our love be influenced by merit. Now let's face it again, we are prone to love in recognition of some merit. And most obvious 
is how easy it is to love those who love us or speak well of us. We like that, don't we? When people speak well of us, when they like us, we tend to gravitate towards them. And isn't it true that our love for others is often predicated on qualities like ability or uprightness or intelligence, trustworthiness, achievement? We look for certain things, don't we? And I see this in church all the time. We have our social circles within the church. We gravitate towards people that interest us or who like us or whom we like. And we steer clear of those who we may not know well or those that we may have had trouble with. But you know, Christ loved us when there was nothing in us to merit his love. In Romans 5.8, Paul said, And Christ demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Died for us. There's no merit in us. In fact, Jesus loved us when we were corrupt, hell-deserving enemies of himself. So in essence, his love for us was unconditional, and we are to love in the same way. That doesn't mean that we condone sin. It doesn't mean we turn our back, but it means that we're to love. It's choosing to love without human prejudice. And if you think this type of love is easy, just walk through Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. Jesus taught, remember, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How many of us have this down, Pat? How many of you pray for every politician you know, every person you've had? How many of you do that? You may pray, all right, imprecatorily, right? That's hard, isn't it? It's easy to love on merit. It's easy to love when people are lovable. But only God's love in us can cause us to love those who persecute us and work against us. And you know, I think of the story of Jim Elliott, who went to the Aka Indians in South America, and stepping off the plane, he was speared and killed. And it was like... What's the point? And yet, his wife, later on, and many that followed, had a testimony there, and they were able to go to those people and share the gospel and love them. That's a tall order. Third, our love for the brethren is to be a sacrificial love. You know, if there is one word in Scripture that is synonymous with love, it is the word giving. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. In Galatians 1.4, Paul says that he gave himself for us. In Titus chapter 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us. You know, we like to think that we're sacrificial in our love, and, and we are to a great degree. But Christ's standard of sacrificial love is a formidable challenge to emulate Sacrificial love wears the robe of humility in a contrite heart when we deal with others. It's not boastful, proud, arrogant. Sacrificial love is a testimonial love. It strives to be an example by following Christ so that others will follow you in the way that you follow Christ so that they follow Christ. Sacrificial love shows mercy when others don't. And we're motivated by the mercy that God has shown us. Sacrificial love is willing to sacrifice for others without deceit, without seeking gain, without wrong motives. 
Sacrificial love is a willingness to sacrifice power or prestige or position or reputation and honor to pursue hard after biblical character and integrity. That is the most important thing. What do we read in Proverbs? That a good name is to be desired more than silver and gold. It's a willingness to be hated by the world in order to love Christ and the brethren. You know, loving in the faith is costly, amen? It's costly. And fourth, our love for the brethren should promote a spirit of forgiving and seeking forgiveness. I know we have heard this from the pulpit many times, but when we recognize the depth of our own sin and the infinite mercy God extended to us, how can we not extend forgiveness or ask forgiveness of others? When we fail to forgive, when we fail to ask forgiveness, remember that the Lord says we will be measured by that same standard. I don't know about you. Is there anyone here who could stand before the Lord and say, you know, I know I've done a lot wrong, Lord, but this person over here, what they've done, I deserved not to forgive them. Anybody want to say that? So we need to recognize how love seeks forgiveness, grants forgiveness. And as I said, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but there are new standards that we are called to as believers here. John MacArthur expresses the seriousness of loving one another. Listen to what he says. He says, Jesus gave the world the right to judge whether or not someone is a Christian based on whether or not that person sincerely loves other Christians. It gives the world the right to judge. And that's a sobering truth. Paul said as much in 1 Corinthians 13.1 where he said, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Listen, if you don't love, your faith is void of reality. Beloved, we do well to remember that every week unbelievers enter this church. Every single week. And they are watching every one of us, to see if there is something truly different in here than what goes on in the world. And the question for us is this, will they see Christ in us? Are we displaying the moral qualities of a genuine believer? Is there outward evidence of our obedience to Christ and his word? Do people see in us those who strive to live righteous lives? Or is our faith simply a talk faith? Are we passing the moral test that gives evidence that our faith is real? Are we passing the social test? Do we truly evidence love for the brethren in a way that emulates Christ's love for us? Would people entering our church immediately sense there is something refreshingly different in here? I do not want unbelievers to see the world in here. Amen? I want them to see something different. Nothing astonishes a fractured world more than the warmth of radical, faithful, genuine love shown among the brethren. 
Listen, people can go to many places and find communities of shared interests. That's not hard. They can find many people like themselves who share similar interests. But nowhere on earth can people go to observe and experience a community of believers who live in truth and righteousness and who know the love of Christ and who live the love of Christ for one another than in Christ's church. And I pray that our church is never characterized as a spiritual wax museum. Instead, let us be a beacon of light, characterized by obedience to the word, the pursuit of righteousness, and a fervent love for the brethren. You know, there is much counterfeit spirituality to be found in churches today. Many claim to keep the truth and to love God and one another, but often their standards are based on human philosophy, intellectual attainment, or easy believism. But in Christ, listen, beloved, we have new standards. And I pray that the transforming experience of our salvation gives us such devotion to Christ and to one another that we are positively and forever identified as true disciples of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you that We are your elect. We thank you, Lord, that you have changed us, that you have cleansed us from the vile, selfish, and damning ambitions of the flesh. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us when we were unlovable, and that you met our hostility towards you with your unconditional love. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to obey your commandments, that we would walk in righteousness. We realize, Lord, that this is not a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but rather that this is a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, a righteousness written in our hearts. And so, Lord, help us, we pray, to live out that righteousness through obedience to your word. And, Father, we pray for a testimony of love. Father, that we would have a fervent love for the brethren, a love that is vibrant, and active, and visible, and grounded in the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from hypocrisy and from error. And Father, that the testing of our faith would always reveal that we truly belong to you, that we would bear the marks of authentic Christian faith, and that as we love and obey, that you would receive the honor and glory which you alone deserve. We thank you for that love and that grace, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.